Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here on a windy but sunny morning in Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller in south-east London, where it's sunny but chilly. Very good day for batting first, uh, sitting in the pavilion, hoping the openers put up a long stand. Now, Richard, today, you ought, can you introduce our guest, who I would say is a bit of a brain box? Well, he certainly is. Very glad to welcome back Tim Wigmore. We talked to Tim about two years ago, nearly, about his um, book uh, Cricket 2.0 which is the Wisdom Book of the Year on the impact of T20. But we're going to talk to him today about another book which he's co-authored with one of the leading sports economists in the world, Stefan Szymanski. His new book is called Cricketomics, The Anatomy of Modern Cricket. It's a really quite brilliant insight into the way economic forces are driving cricket, indeed have always driven cricket, often despite the will of its administrators. Tim, very uh, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Hi, Richard and Peter. Great to be back here for a, a second innings. Can I take what issue with you on one minor matter, Richard? I think books get co-written, not co-authored. Yeah, whatever. They're co- co-written, co- co-authored, co- yeah, co- whatever you like. Um, it's a very good. <laughs> it reminds me of a famous bit of book criticism by Dan Quayle, former vice president of the United States. He was asked to name a book that he really enjoyed uh, and it influenced him. And he named a very, on the advice of his staff, he named a very deep book about history, but he couldn't describe it. And eventually said on live television, it's a, it's, it's, it's a very good historical book about history. <laughs> <laughs> this is the vice this president is, of the United States. This is then the vice president of the United <laughs> States, a heartbeat away from the presidency. Uh, this is a very good uh, cricket book about cricket, uh, Tim, and I'm um, very glad to discuss it today. I think it's a book in almost in two halves. It's a book about the impact of um, economics on cricket, particularly modern economics, modern market forces. And with it, it seems to me, has come a demand for new data on cricket, which you analyse. And these new data have revealed a great deal about the inner workings of cricket, which was sort of hidden before. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a much better summary than anything I can manage myself. But yeah, we, we were, it's a very global book in its focus. My, my interest is very global. So it's it does cover all countries, really, looking at kind of what's really going on and, and what's what's changing. And, you know, this, this ranges from the traditional divide, really, and why it still holds true of why batsmen are much more likely to go to private schools, say, than bowlers, and looking at the forces that have helped India and New Zealand in their different ways rise, looking at uh, networks and how they've had impact on, on Asia and even things like c- concussion and actually uh, actually digging into how serious an, an issue it is. Um, so and, and even things like the revolution in test batting and how it predated uh, T20. Um, so yeah, a, a, quite an eclectic mix. It was very good fun to do. I always find when you're kind of co-writing a book, it, it is good because you it sort of challenges your, your preconceived no, notions a bit. And maybe sometimes, uh, actually, I think some of I, my favourite traps are probably the ones we, we fought over most. Um, oh. yeah, which, which is which is all, all fair. So as I'm sure, sure you two know from co-writing books together as well. No, I just defer to Richard. He's got much better judgment and he's a better writer than I am. So I just let him get on with it um, oh. and take and takes a, a little share of the credit. It's a bit like uh, 
you know, um, Statham and Truman. I know my place. Well, I, um, well, I, 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 far too complimentary, Peter. That's all I can say. And um, Statham and Truman was a was a genuine partnership. And uh, if you got away from Truman at one end, you didn't have an easier time with Statham at the other, and and vice versa. Um, but um, Tim, I'd like to start with a well, with an easy question, a, a nice um, half volley for you. Yeah. Um, is first class cricket doomed economically? Uh, well, economically, it in a sense, it all, it all kind of all, almost always has been. Not always, because obviously after World War Two, it was phenomenally, you know, there was a kind of real golden age of first class cricket. But I mean, the model's always been that it's it's relying on national balls to be subsidised, but um, actually, because of course, first cricket is where test players come from and English cricket, the bulk of the broadcasting rights are still predicated on the value of test cricket. And so, yes, uh, first cricket in its own right, counties are, are you know, they, they lose money in and of themselves and basically dependent on ECB subsidy. But ECB does need need someone to produce the players for them that go into the test team and then that can sell the rights. So I, I don't I don't think I think it's a little simplistic to say, but I think. Clearly, the, the kind of macro forces are against not just first class cricket, but actually test cricket. You know, in many New Zealand is a really good example. You know, they they won the World Test Championship, so they are they got to the pinnacle of test cricket. You know, what I think is a great thing because it gives every nation, regardless whether they have a Ashes or whatever their own marquee series, a chance to get to the pinnacle. Um, so they've done fantastically well as we, as we actually document and chapter looking at why. But they still lose half a million per test that they host, and they can still only afford to host four matches a year. So that that's that is. That kind of sums up the situation where you even have you have a small market, basically team who are performing really, really well, and they can still only afford to play four test matches a year. I think that that embodies the situation and why test cricket. I don't think it will die, but I think it needs creative thinking and collaboration of the sort that historically cricket administrators have not been very good at. Mm. I do think that your book, as a result, it, it, it is it is about the existential crisis facing cricket in the 2020s so, but you're sort of the cricket Jean-Paul Sartre aren't you you're examining the internal contradictions and mechanisms of the game uh, as it, it is about to set off in a whole series of new and possibly disastrous directions well it's yeah it, it's, in, it's an interesting time to do this book certainly um, that there's lots of lots of areas of quite dramatic change I mean they're really really basic one is actually the kind of shift the kind of football style shift really from international cricket being the pinnacle to club v club um so cricket historically is actually quite unusual in being a sport that's so kind of uh so dominated by international contests um it doesn't really have a vibrant domestic game in terms of making money um actually outside of england historically first class counties first class teams have been very very poorly supported around the world um, and then, yeah, the IPL in 2008 and then T20 leagues around the world. That's but that, but that isn't, it isn't club v club. That's franchise v franchise. Yeah, yeah, no, no, sure. But it's it's domestic. And that's what yeah. I mean. It's, it's domestic teams. Um, and that and that is a broad... And the interesting thing, we, we talk about the, the strange conservatism of Kerry Packer, which which I think was, was an interesting exercise. Basically, the fact that when he formed his Rebel League in 1977, well, the, the slogan for it was, was, come on, Aussie, come on. It was all predicated on nation v nations. You know, the radical thing to do for him would have been to try and make people care about Sydney v Melbourne. He didn't do that. He basically just tried to mimic the existing structure of the game, which was Australia playing West Indies and so on. Um, 
But yeah, we're, we're, we're in a moment now where whether you call them clubs or franchises, that is, they're going to be increasingly dominant. And, well, there's and a big I, difference between club. A franchise is a purely, is a fabricated commercial entity, isn't it? It, it doesn't have any roots, real roots anywhere at all. It's it's a it's a, it's a neoliberal dream of of a, a few brilliantly talented individuals paid a fortune, but there's no interest in continuity. There's no interest in the past. There's no interest in the future. It's of the moment. It's utterly. It is. The, it is the absolute epiphany of disaster capitalism as defined by Naomi Klein, isn't it? So I think. At its worst, that is a, probably a fair summation. And we've seen T20 leagues in South Africa and UAE basically be, be stillborn and we've seen teams move and so on. But I, I think increasingly, the more popular franchises, clubs, whatever you call them, they do they are recognising that it's actually in their interest to do to try and do things at a local level. So you, you actually see IPL teams, you know, actually be increasingly quite involved in kind of talent, talent development on the ground and building academies and things like that, more in the domain of what I suppose a traditional sports sports club would do. Clearly, it's quite an uneven thing. But, we, you know, it's important to remember also the IPL as a kind of vehicle for the democratisation of talent um, and for opening up opportunities. That's been an incredible force um, and actually very important in India's rise as well. So we document how India historically basically relied on six states for almost all their players. And there's been a big shift in that, which means... Peter, young players, if they're good enough from other states, actually have a chance to get into the national team and, and make an impact. And the IPL and even actually smaller state T20 leagues are an important vehicle in that process. Whether they're clubs or whether you call them franchises, does this new domestic-focused uh, structure of cricket actually need the first-class game and does it need international test cricket anymore to sustain itself? That's the question I'm sort of struggling with after reading your book well no it doesn't i mean this is the thing so the ipl this season expanded to 10 teams and it's been you know it's gone well from the ipl's perspective and over the you know we're talking about peter talked about cricket in the 2020s and i think if you're looking at cricket in the 2020s and what's gonna look like at the end of the 2020s you would be kind of amazed really if the ipl didn't have more games than its current 74 by by the end of this decade and so what that means for the rest of the calendar is, is a really really big and important question and one of one of my arguments we we again we something we, we talk about is that international cricket needs more well, need needs more of a structure and it needs more more collaboration um at a financial level and by structure i mean things you know overarching competitions like the world test championship i think which i know some people have been lukewarm but i think that's a really important step to try and create a kind of coherent overall package because we've, we can be very anglo-centric and obviously England test cricket is very well followed and England have a luxury of playing multi-match, you know, three three or four or five match series. Lots of other countries don't reference New Zealand who basically play two match series, even though they're really, they've been a very good, good test team in recent years. Um, so creating overall structure to give a wider context, I think is an important part of what test cricket can do to give itself the best chance of remaining as, as relevant as possible. Because one of the, one of the things about, if you look at T20 leagues compared to international cricket, so if you have a, a five-match ODI series or a five-match T20 series or whatever, you know, it can be, so, so so what kind of thing? The question of what does it really matter, you know, win or lose a series, what actually happens? Well, actually, as much as, you know, Peter might, might find them in directions on ways, what T20 leagues do, which I think is very important, they have a very coherent, so what if, if you win or lose? Well, actually, yeah, it depends, you know, whether you get to the playoffs or not depends on if you win this game. So there's actually a very clear 
consequences for victory and defeat, which actually there often aren't in international cricket in a very weird way outside of, of kind of major world, major world events. Um, and cricket has been kind of bumbled along forever. And I think international cricket, given the competition it faces from, from the club club slash franchise game now, um, it needs to it needs to find a better way to answer the, answer those those fundamental questions. It does, but I'm still wondering how international cricket is ever going to generate the, the you know the mass following that uh, is uh, you know is going to make it work and is going to make it attractive to um, to television uh, where the revenue where the revenues are. Mm. Well, so the most watched events in cricket are still international events. There, the, the, the World Cups in ODI and T20 are the most most watched events, but which is actually similar. Again, I talked about football earlier. That's similar yeah. to football. The World Cup is the most. Mm-hmm. So the question is really, it's not, is actual cricket per se is fine because the World Cups are, I think, always going to be massive. The question is what happens in in between, and mm-hmm. and that is and and that kind of the so what um, question, and that and that really will define. I think how important a role international cricket continues to to play in the years ahead, or whether we do get to a situation where actually the best players play eight eight or nine months a year in T Twenty leagues and only a couple of months in international cricket. That is, it's possible to get to that point. I don't I don't think actually it will be quite that extreme. But that is, if you if you're a fan of international cricket, primarily that's probably the sort of doomsday scenario. It is a doomsday scenario, and it doesn't even the good scenarios don't look terribly good for domestic first class cricket anywhere, do they? County Championship looks to be in big trouble, doesn't it? Um, all the all the domestic competitions, Ranji Trophy in India, all of um, Sheffield Shield, they all look they all look extremely vulnerable in this new world, don't they? Yeah, well, I think the yeah market forces are not their friend. But as I said, I mean these competitions are where players come from, and. If Australia don't have a Sheffield Shield, where are they going to have their, their test team from and stuff? So uh, I do think you you can't just, I think to just see first-class competitions through a kind of n- narrow, narrow kind of cost, uh, narrow kind of sense of, of does it pay for itself is, is, is simplistic and wrong because actually it, it's a, it's, it's a, they're nurseries. These are, these clubs, they double as nurseries and producers of talent. That that is that their that is their role, and in a sense, if they can generate money themselves, that's that's a bonus. But their raison d'etre really is to generate international players, which I suppose gets. But it, but if the problem is if 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 that is if that is indeed true, then that clearly looking at the county championship that creates a question of whether eighteen teams will survive in the long term, given there's a huge amount of players who recently are not really ever going to going to play for England, and given the competing attractions for play, both for fans and for players of these t20 leagues um yeah i think in the, in the medium term we, we probably will see less county championship cr- cricket played and possibly also fewer county championship teams per se yeah. but uh, the, I, mean, I'm, I was very impressed when we i don't know if you listened to andy nash the former yeah i did yeah yeah uh, when he came on our podcast and i thought he was incredibly articulate and interesting making the point that somerset which would vanish under the scenario which has been devised by the calamitous ECB, which I think is the enemy of cricket in England mm. at all levels, uh, the English Cricket Board. The if their plans come to fruition, you don't get you, Somerset is absorbed into somewhere else, and this is and Somerset has a structure all around the West Country which has produced some of the greatest players of all of recent history and of all time. You know, from Harold Grimlet to uh, Butler and to Triscothic, Triscothic. I went through a long list of glorious players, which will never be 
and you can't replicate that structure. If you just go over as the ECB, which is dominated, has only has dollar signs in its eyes. It's a franchise hundred cricket. There's just that you're not going to have the structure, you know, you, you know, to, uh, to 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 generate Butler. He'll go off and play football, or yeah, that, that 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 was my point. I, I kept yeah. saying, you know, these these teams are nurseries as well, so they shouldn't just be judged on. Do they economically pay for itself? That, that's a very narrow way of doing it. And of course, if you produce Joss Butler, Marcus Truscothic, actually, even in the narrow kind of economic sense, you, you have more than justified yourself because those players would be hugely valuable to the England team. Who's going to subsidise this this nursery? Where Where's the cash coming from? Bearing in mind that you've got to subsidise a lot of players who aren't making the, as you just said, who aren't going to make the England team, but you're going to give them a decent wage structure, wage structure which they never had before as county cricketers. Who does this? Where's this money coming from? Well, but Richard, can I inter- interrupt you? What the English Cricket Board has done is to deliberately sabotage the economics of the counties by inventing the hundred, the long term economic, the long term future. So there is there was a was a structure which was working rather well uh, with the twenty twenty and the blast and so forth. And so you have to have a governing body, don't you, which values and understands the the history and the future of the game rather than the paycheck they're getting from the big um, corporation, big broadcasting corporations in the short term. Well, even so, they've still, uh, with even with goodwill, and I've got, I'd have, I've no brief the ECB, but even with goodwill, they need cash to subsidise this nursery of English cricket talent. Where is this cash coming from? If the counties and the nurseries can't generate it themselves, who is, you know, in the old days, it used to be rich patrons um, would keep the counties afloat. Then later it became the television revenues. If these streams of income are diminishing or disappearing, what else is going to replace them? Well, so the, the television revenue is still, it's not really diminishing. It's still a huge, a huge source of cash. And, and, that, and the question is how that's divided up. And I suppose the ECB would say, if you're being generous to them, and I'm, um, I'm not necessarily <laughs> saying this is what I think, but um, more cash from the 100 will ultimately mean you can help to keep the counties uh, afloat because you have more money um, from broadcasting rights. But um, I know that's uh, possibly a naive point of view there. I'm not, I'm not saying what I think, but, but yeah, I mean, there, 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 there is money. It's a question of how you, how you prioritise it, which I guess has is, is always been the question. But it's, it's, I guess it's, it's more acute than ever because there's so many different paths that cricket can kind of go down. One path you suggest, I think, rather interestingly in your book, is one thought which I found very interesting is the idea that cricket is becoming a niche sport. Now, there are plenty of products and services that are niche products and services and are, and are promoted as such. Uh, so is that necessarily such a bad thing? The English counties um, point to the streaming figures they get and the, and the following they get on, on social media. And I'm just wondering if they could do more to monetize these. But is there a way in which cricket could actually promote it? First-class cricket could actually promote itself. Long-form cricket could actually promote itself. Specifically, it's something for the connoisseur. What, you mean like the Coca-Cola campaign, the the, the real thing? Well, why not? Coca-Cola have sponsored cricket elsewhere. Um, Sell them the county championship. It's the real thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, but I think you, you actually take a step back. It should be... You should be getting getting them to... The ICC should be getting them to sponsor the, the World Test Championship. Um, and actually, mm. I, I think one of the... If you like test record, one of the big frustrations is, is there's a huge amount of creativity and ingenuity and, and simply investment and money give, given to promoting T20 cricket, which in many ways promotes itself and um, com- 
very little thought and effort in comparison has actually been given to how to promote test cricket, which is actually a bigger question is a harder question. Um, and so administrators actually have, you know, they're very good at saying test cricket is the pinnacle, but in terms of, of judging them on their actions, it's, it's a very, very different story. Mm, very true. And it doesn't help. The OCC doesn't come out well in your book at all. Uh, it doesn't help that the ICC seems to be a um, you know a restrictive cartel, just determined to preserve the the pile of cash for the uh, for the test test playing countries. That's absolutely right. The thing about the ICC is it's set up deliberately to be a members organisation. It's explicitly a members organisation, um, and it's basically set up by the biggest members to be weak. Really, the biggest members they want it to be an events organiser, which is very very good at. Um, but they don't want it to do a huge amount else because they don't they don't want it to be a strong political force because India and England are, are very happy kind of running the game on their whims as they are at the moment. Um, so having strong independent governments, which is what cricket desperately needs, because it's it's a very you know the schedule is relentless. There's too much cricket. It's it's just a, the schedule lacks no real coherence. You know if it's Tuesday, there must be cricket somewhere. But beyond that, what is what is the actual coherence what, what why is this happening now there's none there's none of that it's just kind of the game is kind of bumbling along and you have all these competing forces and competing interests so the ICC desperately needs to be stronger um which is not allowed to do because of the, the countries with the power in it and it it needs to do do a lot better at sharing up its cash I mean India gets I think 400 million US dollars from the ICC over an eight-year period now that to India is is almost a decimal point in how given how much it's earning from its home internationals and of course the IPL. Um, but if that money was divided up to associate countries, that make that potentially makes a huge, huge difference. Now, Tim, what, am I right? In, Richard and I interviewed uh, Asan Mani, who was a yeah. brilliant, I think, um, leader of the ICC, and he described how when the television revolution in revenues happened in the nineties, he was very. He, he went out of his way to make sure that money went to the most unlikely places like funding women's cricket in Iran got a big dose and a coach and um, and so and that one of the reasons why we got this amazing surge in Afghan cricket for instance in the in the, at the turn of the century and thereafter and it helps to explain why you get these new wonderful players like Rashid Khan suddenly emerging on the world world scene my sense is that the ICC has lost that magnificent global vision in recent years that's right so the, the the crucial event the kind of positive event was the well the champions trophy as it's called well as it was kind of later called but originally the icc knockout was formed in 1998 it's half of that revenue was was siphoned off to give to associate countries to basically to to grow this the sport around the world which helps in the rise of kenya which all got semi-finals 2003 and in the rises of ireland and Afghanistan subsequently um and that sort of that globalizing zeal it diminishes it collapses after the world cup in 2007 when um which has 16 teams but of course the wrong teams get through and there's the um India Pakistan marquee super eight match planned for Barbados there's for the first time ever there's direct flights from India to Barbados it's going to be a huge thing highlight of the world cup and the wrong teams go through so Ireland beat Pakistan Bangladesh beat India uh, broadcasters are so you have um yeah, you have Ireland versus Bangladesh instead of India, Pakistan, and, and the Kensington Oval. Um, broadcasters are furious and stuff, and that and that's what what leads to the contraction of the World Cup to ten teams, which I think is an incredibly damaging step, completely contrary to the evidence of associate teams improving, and also you need to, to grow the sport 
Um, although, albeit that was only that's only happening for one more World Cup, and then they're actually moving 2027 back to 14 teams. This sort of sums up the logic that they're now saying this is a great new positive thing. When if you still look in 20 years, um, the number of World Cup teams would still have gone down by two. And the contrast, I know it's an uncomfortable one at times, but with with football and you know FIFA, very very corrupt organization clearly, but actually has done a lot to to, to grow the sport. Um, and the ICC, there is a lot of good people at the ICC, but they're not really um, empowered to do their jobs because they're set up to be weak. It's interesting comparison, isn't it, between the uh, Richard and I, great admirers of um, Roland Bowen's great history of cricket, uh, which uh, written in 1970. And his yeah, argument, I wanted to, I wanted to get a copy of that actually. I, I, it seems to be out of out of print. It is out of print. It should be reprinted. We think it's... Richard, I think you and I think it's a masterpiece, don't we? It is a masterpiece. It should be, re, be ideal if it were reprinted and updated uh, in the same way. Could we suggest that you should write the introduction, uh, Tim? I would be honoured, but I, I just want to want to, want to get a copy of it myself. Um, I've actually been trying to get one, and I can't... Yeah, it's, it's bizarre, actually. And, and maybe that, that sort of speaks to your thing about the kind of cricket writing being very, very focused, very Anglo-centric historically. Yeah, the, the, the central argument, or no, it's got so many amazing arguments, but one of its central arguments is that is that the Imperial Cricket Conference, exactly the same initials as the ICC, yeah. it, it, it was a disastrous full step because uh, it, it, whereas the ICC as it is it now exists is a form of uh, neoliberal a sort of mixture of market protectionism and neoliberalism. The Imperial Cricket Conference was really a, a, about restricting cricket to the British Empire, and it and it led to certain countries above all the United States, being which had a as strong a team as uh, as England or Australia in 1910, being driven out of cricket altogether. Exactly. So that the name is exclusionary, and it takes until 1965 when it's then the International Cricket Conference, um, when you have associate members for the first time. But this is way behind what's happening in, in football, for example. And even then, the steps are very, very tentative. And, th and there is this bizarre thing where in football, you know, if there's a one, if someone hammers, you know, if there's a 5-0 game, you know, people say, oh, that was quite fun. That happens sometimes. And in cricket, if, if there's a kind of thrashing, people say we should get rid of these teams. They don't, they don't deserve to be here and stuff, which isn't, it's sort of, yeah, it's still, I, I always think in, in many sections of cricket administrators, there is a very weird strand where they have a sort of, they like the idea that cricket is kind of impenetrable for some people. And actually they like exuding mm. some people and they like the idea that not everyone can get it. And, and they quite like, therefore, not having a lot of countries that play it. And I mean, the uh, I've talked to administrators in other sports about cricket and the, the World Cup contracting, and they, they just find it incredible. They, they find it absolutely mad. Um, and so, you know, that's a very, you know, England, of course, were a crucial, crucial part of, of what I would argue was a terrible retrograde step for um, the, the global game. Well, that takes us really into the general issue of, um, of class in cricket, class and exclusion in cricket. I said a moment ago that um, cricket's becoming a niche sport. Um, your book has a lot of um, insight into class issues in cricket, especially... I thought the um, demonstration of why elite private schools are still still so important as a pathway into into top cricket, not just in England, but also you say in Australia, uh, in South Africa, despite the formal end of apartheid, it's white elite schools are still really controlling entry 
into cricket for the best black players. Sri Lanka, all sorts of countries. And it's very interesting in your data, you show why all of these schools are biased towards batters. Yeah, this is um, one thing that will really annoy Australians is we show that of Ashes players in the 2010s, so from uh, 2010-11 Ashes to the end of 2019 Ashes, 45% of England's uh, players were predominantly educated at private schools, which is probably not surprising, but also 44% of Australia's Ashes players were educated at, at private schools. So Australia rely on private schools as well as England, or which which maybe doesn't fit in with a kind of egalitarian image of Australia. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't fit in with the, as you say in your book, doesn't fit in with the way in which their public school players regularly get sledged. And um, yeah, and then there was an amusing, mm. bizarre. I mean, a, a kind of an incredible kind of window into Australia's self-image and probably where that is different to the reality where Ed Cowan, um, who was educated at private school, um, when he broke it into the team and scored a century, there was a headline that Cowan smashes through the private school barrier, suggesting <laughs> that, n- not not even suggesting that going pri- to private school was irrelevant, but it actually was a, a disadvantage um, to him. And that's that's not borne out in the data. Um, albeit there are differences, you know, Australia, there are more people who are educated at, at, at private schools, sometimes for, for for religious regions, um, uh, Catholic schools, it's still an interesting point. And and actually looking at England specifically, you you said it remains true. Well, it doesn't just remain true; it's becoming more true, of course. So the, the data we have from 1946 onwards clearly shows that actually the dependence on private schools for talent is increased in over over that period. And there's also this interesting divide between batters and bowlers, where um, an English test batter is about twice as likely to go to private school as English test bowler. So that very, almost very traditional divide, you know, going back to the days of landowners who would be batters because bowling is more, more arduous, more hard work. Yes. They would, they would get their labourers to bowl to them. Or well, that, that, or that, that aspect is probably still recognisable to, you know, someone who was a cricket aficionado in the 18th century. Fascinating. Still, still recognisable in the Indian subcontinent, um, where you know the, the Maharajas batted um, and had fielding substitutes and, and bowled, and still yeah, the Maharaja of uh, sorry, there <laughs> was one Maharaja, wasn't there, who who would remain at remain at, in his house and he would be called up on the telephone. Yes, when it was his turn to bat, mm. and he, a Rolls Royce would arrive, take him to the ground. He was score a century. Uh, I don't think anybody. Uh, I was going to give him out, <laughs> and, and then he would retire to, back, back to the not to the pavilion, but to his to his palace. His, yes, his palace. Yeah. Yes, he's driven there. He's driven to the ground by Rolls Royce. <laughs> and no, I think that that batting bowling divide it partly reflects that to generalise, nature is more important for bowlers. If you you know if you're very tall and so on for a fastball, that's a massive advantage. And nurture is is relatively more important for for, for batters. Um, so generally, if you have access to facilities, coaching, just, just being able to play a huge amount, that probably helps you more um, as a batter. I think more people have the potential to bat for England than, than they do to bowl for England. Well, they can compensate. That's, I think, as you say in the book, batters can compensate uh, uh, for physical disadvantage by, by better technique. And if you learn, if you learn technique early, um, you're well set, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, there's the, and also you, you can obviously actually, you know, Sachin Tendorka was was five foot six. Historically, actually, most of the, the great the great test batsmen have been on the slightly smaller side. 
So there's not actually a kind of one size fits all. And obviously, you know, there's there's great short short fast, but Malcolm Marshall was was five foot ten. But clearly, if you're if you're you're five foot five, you're never going to be a great fast bowler, and you could still be a, a great batter. I think Harold Larwood is five foot seven. Was toughened up by work underground in the mines, but uh, five foot seven, but just a, probably the best bowling action of all time. Interesting also that he was associated with body line. You wouldn't have thought he could have got the bounce. Yeah, yeah I suppose from that angle, you can get a very it's a, the bouncer at that that height. If it's well delivered, it's very hard to to lead. You can't really get out, get out of the way of it. So if it's yeah. if it's fast enough, it's pretty relentless into your body. Where if, if you're if you're a lot a lot taller um, as a batter. Yeah, it, it's scary. It's maybe scarier, but it, probably more chances to, to duck and get out of the way altogether. Yeah, it was. He was. Um, uh, that's that's a very good point. Tim, you discuss very strongly the interplay of class and race in English cricket, uh, especially the very important chapter you put on stereotypes and the way that um, players get categorised by by race. But looking at your analysis of class, thinking that even if racism could be extinguished completely at all levels of English cricket is cricket ever really going to be able to compete with football and other sports as a potential career for for young athletes from low-income families given the cost of equipment cost of travel cost of the best preparation and coaching there are all these forces already sort of driving cricket aren't they to aren't there to the sort of affluent classes in suburbs in the countryside that's true although um i talked a lot with stefan about this and he he kind of went through the the cost of, of equipment and, and it pointed out, you know, far less than having a a, a smartphone as is, is pretty standard for for most 12, 13 year olds. So I think the cost of equipment for the majority of of people, not all, but the majority is not prohibitive. I think what is more prohibitive and it's really a, a scandal actually is in the county age group system. So a huge amount of counties you have to if you're on the system you actually have to pay for your coaching and that does create a massive barrier um, and that's a new thing where you see counties such as Sussex they actually are basically using their pathways as a way of making money for, for themselves so yeah if we, if we develop players it's great but actually we're, we're, this is a profit making enterprise for us uh, that kind of thing is, is a huge barrier um, in the game I think that the cost per se are not if, if everything else is is in place and kids who need it have been given support i don't think i think the cost per se doesn't would only rule out actually a very small percentage of people which is still still terrible but but actually it's it's the wider system and the kind of the, the kind of coaching element that i talked about and a huge i mean a huge conflict of interest is it's it's incredibly common that so you have so you are a, a player in a county under 13 team and and the coach he'll also do private coaching as well and it's an incredible conflict of interest where mm. he's, of course, whether consciously or not, it's in his interest to favour the kids who pay him for those that private coaching because they, if he kicks them off the team, then they're not going to. Their parents will not be paying for more private coaching. So that that's those are the sorts of I think those are actually the bigger barriers than the actual cost of of bat and pads. Which yeah, it can be an issue, but I think the the the, the deeper issue really it comes at the coaching coaching and, and access and also networks as well. So and one of the, the big issues we, we have with situation now where some private school, they have four, like I think Scarborough College, they have four former international players as coaches. It's an incredible advantage if you're in that system. And and also even if you're you have two kids and one is a one is there and one is just a, a normal, normal 
uh, state state school will actually have a system where you know they're equally good the, the one at the kind of the, the cricket nursery well they will have way less chance of kind of falling through the cracks because their coaches will know all the right people and so on so i think these are the bigger issues mm. than the cost of of bat and, and pads Right. Absolutely fascinating. I hadn't heard all of that, and it's very troubling, as you say. Well, public schools now, a lot of public schools are actually competing, aren't they? They're actually marketing themselves as basically as cricket centres, aren't they? Yeah, and this phenomenon of 110% scholarships, uh, which I've learned of, where, where, yeah, where parents are basically paid to send their kids to, to certain schools, um, basically so that it, it's seen as it's really a marketing device from the schools because if you say, oh, we produce five England players, then it's going to make you, you more appealing for other parents down the line. And I suppose one debate here in terms of the private school thing, which is which is interesting, is to what extent do private schools make the players and to what extent are they merely taking the credit for players that were actually quite well on that path already? And I'd argue it's probably a combination of, of both. But, with, actually, but in our data, we, we try and kind of answer this in a fair way by we count someone as state or private depending on where they spent majority of their secondary education so case of joe root who got scholarship age 15 we count him as state educator which i think is right because i think i don't think he is a product primarily of of private schools obviously, yeah, um, yeah. Obviously. but, but clearly yeah but clearly actually so i was looking at the data for england and 19s recently and of their squad in the winter so i think 18 players over the winter and six of them were already at private schools at the age of six so that, that is showing that, yes, scholarships are a factor and can distort things at times, but clearly um, it's not only that. There's a lot, there's a lot that's going wrong at the access, access stage as well. And, and of course, we're, we're in an age of sort of industrialization of, of sports facilities and coaching at, at private schools. I think that there's been a significant increase in, in basically in private school spending um, above inflation since, since 1990, um, which means that the divide, and that's come at a time, obviously, when spending at state schools especially on sports being squeezed so the divide and one reason so what therefore why we think the divide is increasing is because the the relative access you have to resources between going to a state school and private school that that gap is is increasing and has increased over time so it's it's becoming more of an advantage to go to these elite schools and more of a barrier to overcome if, if you don't and it doesn't mean it's impossible for talented enough but clearly you basically buy a lot more lottery tickets if you go to one of these schools which are basically now factories of cricketing talent there's another issue of actually not related to first class cricket it's just if you're an ordinary boy who likes cricket you're basically being denied the chance to play for the first 11 uh because they're buying in these sort of superstar talent so it's actually not and actually cricket is a is a joy for all sorts of people you know and i think they're getting i, I felt this about the boat race at oxford and cambridge you know you in the old days, you know, you you eighteen year old boy, you're a decent rower. You got into the got a blue. Nowadays, you're up against sort of twenty six year old so called PhDs from universities in America who weigh twice as much as you do. There's no way you're going to get into the get a blue. And I feel this is a a sort of betrayal of what education is really about. It's very much about the marketing aspect and trying to say, you know, we we have have ten players who are now playing in first class cricket. And that's the way. And of course, um, for a number of private schools, they get a huge amount of their revenue from foreign students. So again, if you, you if you can go to 
India or whatever and say, we, we're producing all these players, well, then you're going to probably get more foreign applicants and uh, the, the fees are generally half foreign students as well. So it's it's all it's part of the marketing, really. Um, but, you know, I, I talked to um, the cricket, the director of cricket at a private school, and he basically said what happens sometimes is new headmaster will come and say, we, we need to get better at cricket. How can I do that? And he'll say, the easiest thing that we can do is I can go to my, my local county under 13 um, this was a, a former county player um, and I can find out who the state school kids are and we can just offer them scholarships. So it, it's not dissimilar to the sort of war for talent we see uh, between football academies, but that's between clubs and this is between schools and cricket. Have you looked at other sports and the advantage conferred by private education? I don't think there's much an association in soccer, is there? No, it's. I mean, I mean the, there, there are other forms of advantage which you know arise in different ways in soccer, but I don't think I don't think it's just. I don't think many professional soccer players are edu- have been educated at private school, have they? Not historically, but I know that is actually beginning to shift a bit. Partly because some private schools are paying more attention to 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 football. I think guys like Alex Oxlade Chamberlain, Tyrone Mings, Callum Chambers, they all went to private. So there is. It's sort of they really. This is, got, this is such an interesting conversation. I had no idea of that. But it's it's yeah. in football. It used to be disproportionately few went to private schools. Now it's about proportionate. Yeah, it's a bit like pop music, isn't it? You know, in, in, when Richard and I were lads, you know, George Harrison and Bob Lennon and McCartney and Co. They they be they come up from comprehensive or secondary moderns. Nowadays, almost without exception, you know, the leading pop stars are, are, <laughs> went to Eton. I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, there's a very um, important chapter, too, on the success of Indian cricket in recruiting players from smaller cities and towns. And something you've alluded to already, Tim, is the role of T20 franchises as a sort of alternative pipeline into cricket without the sort of patronage and the networking that used to be very common in provincial associations. And I think you've sort of traced the rise of Indian cricket, precisely the recent rise of Indian cricket, precisely to this ability to, to widen its um, widen its outreach. Yeah, we, we've, I think the ability to access more talent has been a crucial part. Um, so basically, in the of Indian test cricketers born in the 1950s, 76% of them were from the, the big six states. So if you weren't from these states, it was very, very difficult to get in the team. Um, since 1990, only half of Indian test cricketers have been from the big six states. So there's been this, this shift over time. It's sort of d- democratization of Indian cricket. It's clearly not a finished process. Actually, we we love myths in cricket and, and with India, not just in cricket, actually, but the, the myth of the, the village, which kind of goes back to Gandhi, that, that is very prevalent. And um, there are occasionally players who come from small remote villages, but actually that's that's incredibly rare. And India generally does, n- does not find a way to tap into this talent very effectively but the the shift has, has come from basically the rise of so-called smaller cities but we have to remember these are often big so ranchy home of ms Dhoni is yeah is seen as a kind of flagbearer of this but that, that is a city of a million people it is not a, sm- a small place but india's got better at tapping into talent from places such, such as that so it's it's basically opened up its, its talent pool um, and there's been other shifts as well there's actually been a big increase in in, pri- in private academies, which often um, have scholarship places as well, and a, a rise in state T20 leagues as well as the IPL, um, and the Indian 18 programs got a lot better as well. So they're, they're basically, the, what, what, what's happened is there's been a kind of professionalization of how talent is developed in India. And traditionally, I think you were very reliant on the eyes and the verdict of one 
one state select if he didn't think you were good you were probably done for now there's actually multiple multiple ways to get into the system so less talent is being missed and, and i think one of the one of the big kind of inescapable conclusions really from our, our book you know if you you look at what this all means is okay injury is getting a lot better at developing this talent it's not perfect at it but what does that mean well that means we could get to a stage 10 years time or whatever where injury are probably the the second or third best team in the world amazing like Manchester City is sort of uh, second eleven here. The um that that that's copied around the world. I mean, the Pashtunisation of um of Pakistan cricket is is as part of that same phenomenon, isn't it? There wasn't already a Pakhtun player until the nineties, and then and now there's loads, and the and that's wonderful. But there's one other theme that you, that you develop in the book. I mean, I think your book's incredibly rich and fascinating. Is um. My uh, taught me history at university. Dr. Jonathan Steinberg wrote a book, "Why Switzerland?" You know, here you have a unique why the why the special political structures, why the independence, how did it survive? And you have a chapter which is effectively why New Zealand, because uh, you have a tiny country. Cricket isn't even the number one sport, and yet it's produced a series of genius cricketers, and it's the best team in the world. I mean, how is that? How does that happen? I think just just take a step back. Why do why does this matter? Well, I think it's a very important topic because we're in an age. You've talked a lot. We've talked a lot about money on this podcast. We're in an age where the kind of risk is that your your GDP as a country becomes more and more important, ter- determining who who wins and loses. And there's there's the kind of big threats of the, the so-called big three economically um, in your Australia and England become ever ever more dominant, leaving the rest behind. They certainly they, they run the sport along the lines of of how they want. Um, and that makes what New Zealand have done really all the more remarkable. So they historically they were pretty much a, an also ran in test cricket. They were obviously good in the 1980s, but they only they took 26 years to win their their first first test match. They they were eighth as as recently as start of 2013. Um, and they now despite this system really being set up for them to fail, they actually managed to um, reach number one in the world rankings. And crucially, they beat India in the first ever World Test Championship final uh, last year in England, which was a really momentous achievement um, for New Zealand. And so, yeah, the reasons why they've done that is is really important, I think, for other countries to to study. And there's sort of broadly, I suppose you can say, there's the kind of the great man school of 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 history which is is all because of McCullum and Kay Williamson and and so on I think there's, there's there's a bit into that but I'd argue that with every year that New Zealand are carrying on being successful and of course are being successful across formats remember they got to the last 250 over World Cup finals they got to the last 220 World Cup final as well something deeper is going on and is, is worth studying so so what's going on here well I think cricket governance is generally pretty abject um New Zealand have actually very good governance and it's been recognized by academics as amongst the best governments in any sport. Um, and essentially, the key moment here is 1995, when um, there's a review into governance cricket in New Zealand, and the board New Zealand is very much run, not similar to uh, English cricket now, so all the, the local regions, they all have, have uh, seats on the board, and incredibly, the administrators, they vote themselves out of existence, but sports administrators never do, and so the board compromising um, people make, representing different regions is replaced by people who are just the best people for the job. So you have, a, so starting from that, so you actually have the sport is being well run. And so what happened is New Zealand has then made a series of very important strategic decisions. Um, it's been actually found a way of increasing popularity and interest in the sport. Actually the, the cricket max, which is kind of, which is Martin Crowe's idea, sort of a forerunner to T20 in many ways. That was, that was part, that was part of the journey. And crucially, 
these administrators, they've actually been able to take decisions with cricket at their heart. So what's happened is we've seen a series of important steps. So a, a huge one is there was a warrant of fitness um, in 2005 in domestic cricket. So before New Zealand, a domestic match were played often at local club grounds, basically, which was very charming and nice, but the facilities were, were substandard and the pitches were very, very poor. And since, since then, New Zealand's uh, average in New Zealand's first-class cricket has gone from amongst the lowest in the world so it's actually been the highest since 2010. So the pitches are really good, which is helping to prepare players for test cricket and bridge that gap. And the, the culture of the game there, domestic teams very much are subservient to the national team in a similar way to actually the model in New Zealand rugby, where the super rugby teams, uh, they work very closely with, with the All Blacks. So something similar now happens in New Zealand cricket. And we talked to Mike Hessen, the former New Zealand coach, and he talked about how often he would call up coaches and request that players move into certain positions. You had BJ Watling, who was being used as an opener for his domestic team, and they wanted Watling to be wicketkeeper for New Zealand. So they got him to move down to the middle order and become wicketkeeper. And he became probably New Zealand's best ever wicketkeeper. And um, there was another similar example with Tom Latham, who was, he was opening a one-day cricket. They wanted him to bat five, um, and then they got the coach. And this is a good kind of example now, given that, Ollie Pope is now batting at three for England against New Zealand. Um, and he's never done, done it before. Um, and I talked to Surrey and they said there'd be no contact uh, from England. You know, very basic thing, not giving um, Fascinating. Not giving him the, the best the best job. Another exists example of how the ECB is absolutely clueless. How really interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just to um, give it a couple more, a bit, bit more meat on the bone here. A lot of other countries have had a very adversarial relationship with foreign T20 leagues. West Indies is a good example. New Zealand have been very, very kind of pragmatic and shrewd about this. So they haven't, haven't fought against, against the IPL and, and other leagues. They've kind of recognised it actually as an advantage because it actually makes cricket more attractive for young athletes in New Zealand because you can earn a lot more money. So they've been very smart at kind of developing that. And they've invested a lot in their 18 programme as a way of bridging, bridging the divide. And they even uh, reduced the amount of domestic first-class matches in 2018 to fund more 18 cricket, which is an important part of the um, journey to international cricket. So, yeah, a lot of kind of very shrewd, sensible, sensible decisions and kind of recognising their limitations and rather than trying to emulate Australia or, or whoever. Is that, is that, can I, there's one point, just so we can revert back to the themes of our earlier conversation on the class issue. Is there a, do they have the kind of, the, the uh, it feels to me that in New Zealand, something's working in a more, uh, in a more social level, i.e. there's a kind of equality or equality of opportunity, which maybe doesn't apply, well, obviously doesn't apply in Britain at all. Yeah, I, th I think it's, you can probably idealise it. And I mean, private schools are still fairly important in New Zealand, to be honest, but I think it's it's more egalitarian than, than England cr cr cricket in general. Um, I mean, yeah, it's not perfect. It's not a panacea, but they certainly are the, the best run, run uh, country in, in cricket. And that's been... I think at the heart of the. So will Brendan McCullum ma manage to import some, uh, you know, some good ideas on the administrative side as well as as well as being a good coach? Yes, I, I suspect. We actually talked to McCullum about this uh, as unveiling as coach, and he was he's there to sort of fix the the culture. That's why why he's been appointed. I don't think he's gonna he's not going to be getting involved in in the wider structural stuff. But I think there's there's something that in, there are things that England can learn from from New Zealand. That's that's very important, and actually not just yeah. You know, other countries as well. So I mean, there was, I remember there was footage, I think a couple of years ago in uh, Pakistan shared by Misbah or Huck, 
during the Pakistan first class comp- competition. And it was sort of with, with squalid toilets and worn, worn tiling and paint peeling off damp, damp walls. And he was just saying this is not fit to prepare players for international cricket. So a lot of, lot of countries can learn from these steps, which seem kind of basic, but are very important. And yeah, of course, New Zealand as well, they, they are professionalised. So they actually only um, in the 21st century have they actually had genuinely professional players at d- domestic level, really from 2001. So a guy like Ross Taylor was always, almost the first international player for New Zealand who'd been professional all, all the way up. Um, as opposed to be able to having to do kind of multiple multiple jobs initially, um, yeah. So all these these steps have been very important, and I think with all the tensions in cricket, all the kind of competing interests being well run, has never never been been so important. Certainly, if you don't have the economic advantages of, of the big three, there is one other point which doesn't fit into our thesis. I think that, that luckily for New Zealand, association football isn't very important there. And it is the case, isn't it, that, you know, Dennis Compton would never have played cricket for England ever in, in, in the modern era. He'd have just been a play for Arsenal. And uh, and that applies to many of the great... Len Hutton would never have played cricket. So I think those the outstanding sportsmen of the age in, in New Zealand, I suspect, could become rugby players or cricketers, whereas in England, they just become association footballers and that's that. And yeah, but I think the steps New Zealand have taken, that New Zealand cricket have taken, has made cricket relatively more attractive compared to rugby, compared to a generation ago. One very important insight in your book, which has been shared by some other other guests on our, on our podcast, that's the innovatory leadership which is being shown in women's cricket generally, and even more important, this is a book about economics, the fact that women's cricket now offers the quickest return on the smallest investment in cricket. And it's been recognised, as you say, by some countries like Brazil and Thailand and um, mainland China. But has it really been recognised, you know, elsewhere in the mainstream of cricket, that women's cricket really is the best source of investing in the in the game if you, um, if you want to grow it quickly? Yeah, so the sort of the, the history of innovation is, is really remarkable. So over on bowling which is disputed but it's potential um and certainly more recently a lot more tangible stuff so the first world cup was in the women's game the first t20 international was in the women's game the first structure competition the women's odi championship was in the women's game the start of the 100 was the women's game and 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 this year women's cricket is is back in well is, is in the commonwealth games which is hopefully going to be a gateway cricket getting into the olympics so yeah women's cricket basically has kind of been a bit more agile the barriers to change have been have been less and has been, been very very adapted sort of adapting to, to changing tastes and obviously in a situation where it generally hasn't received en- enough investment um so it's actually had some sh- shrewd leadership has has helped to get to its current position and we're now at a fascinating juncture where we've seen we i think brazil were the first ever country believed to be the first ever country to adopt full professional contracts for their women's squad before doing so for um, their, their men's team as well um, and Thailand reached the T20 World Cup in 2020 um, and so we, we're seeing different countries emerge in the women's game and I think the, the the big question really is can the ICC create a situation which football has actually been good at doing where the hierarchy in the women's game does not just replicate the, the men's game clearly the, the risk is, is very simple which is that for almost every country the amount of funding they receive is so tied to their men's team that the amount of uh, investment in their women's in a women's team will just depend on how successful a, a men's a men's team is. You know, I remember talking to to Ireland player an Ireland women's player a few years ago, and she said 
the money we get is just based on how well that the men do. So that's not a good situation to be in. Um, and now it would be great if the ICC, again, the leadership we've we've said has often been lacking. You know, if they were to create a system of central contracts centrally by the ICC, which would enable, you know, if if, if the best best women, women's players in the world are, are coming from from the pool or or wherever, they actually they can still be they can be, be professionals um, and actually get the, the sort of funding that they need to to make good on their talents um, and that's a big kind of question there's the real risk in women's cricket is that if this this not happened you end up having almost a more extreme version of the inequalities in the the men's game so kim garth who is ireland's uh, probably ireland's best player she she's moved she moved to australia a couple of years ago to play domestically because it's it's a better option for her but so she's being lost to country who desperately need her because this situation this structure that needs to be is not yet in place so there's obviously so much that's gone wrong with with men's cricket and how it's run and uh hopefully the icc can actually learn some of these lessons and not just just recreate all the bad stuff in the women's game as well tim absolutely fascinating conversation uh hardly done justice to your book because there's so many more important uh, messages uh, in it Certainly more insights in it from from uh, the data that you've looked at. Perhaps we'll invite you back for third innings. For now, though, you have to say thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and I'll just mention the title of your book again, Cricketonomics, The Anatomy of Modern Cricket, by Stefan Szymanski and Tim Wigmore. Sadly, Stefan couldn't be with us today because he lives in the United States. Meanwhile, I am salivating ahead of the, the first test uh, match between England and New Zealand at Lord's starting this Thursday, and it's now overcast in Wiltshire. It's now uh, becoming overcast in south-east London. We always get the weather from Wiltshire a few few hours later. So um, it's goodbye for me. Thank you again, Tim. No thanks to my cat, which has just knocked over a large volume. (laughs) And it's goodbye from me too.